welcome. This is Dr. Kelly for History 311. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the later civil rights movement, uh, kind of 1965 to uh, just before Reagan's election. Um, <clears throat> this is kind of the, the final of our civil rights lectures. Uh, you could argue that we've had three uh, with the Double V campaign, then the proper civil rights movement, or what's hailed as a proper civil rights movement, and finally the later civil rights movement. I don't think this one's going to be two hours long, but hey, you never know. Uh, also this week, there's an outside podcast about the Black Panther Party. Um, you're not going to be required to listen to it for a grade or anything like that, but if you want to know more about the Black Panther Party, uh, this podcast just came out a week or two ago from NPR. Um, I was going to assign you to watch the movie uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, but uh, that's on HBO, and I'm sure most of y'all have access to HBO, but eh, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about it if, we, if you've heard of it. So, uh Anyway, it's some pretty interesting information about the Black Panther Party. Uh, I do want to admit up front that this uh, podcast, sorry, the podcast about the Black Panther Party from NPR uh, definitely has a different argument than I might have about NPR, uh, the, about the Black Panther Party, specifically in their appeal and basically the, the threat that they would be a, this giant Marxist organization that could cross over. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that, but uh, the, most of their factual information is correct, but some of their arguments might be a bit different. Hey, you might agree with it. We can talk about that in class. But as you look right now, as you open up the PowerPoint for today's lecture, uh, you're going to see basically uh, individuals giving the black power fist. Uh, the raised fist is this idea of black power, black solidarity. Uh, really embodies part of the later civil rights movement. Uh, the civil rights movement really becomes more radical, more defiant, and... I don't want to say problematic, because it's not a problematic movement by any stretch of the imagination. But this is the part of the civil rights movement you might not have heard as much about. This is the one that does not get romanticized. What does get romanticized is, you know, Dr. King speaking, you know, I have a dream on the um, steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And then he gets killed, supposedly, oh yeah, the next day or something. No, he's killed like five, six years later. And in those five or six years, the civil rights movement as a whole changes, and Dr. King changes even. So let's get going. So first you have the rise of black nationalism, all right? Uh, the white, the black nationalism really comes as a backlash to the white backlash. Um, white resistance is becoming very, very, very large, very large across the country, not just in the South, uh, not just in the South, but across the country. Now my son's crying right now. Oh, it's sad. Across the country, you have white Americans really pushing against all the things that are going for in African-Americans. Uh, they find a very large protest against the civil rights movement, even though it's steeped in respectability. You know, even though Dr. King and his ilk, they're going out Sunday best, looking, you know, dressed to the nines, not being violent, being, you know, passive resistance, that sort of thing. And basically, there's still a major white backlash across the country. This is not one of the ones that you can really pin on just the South. Uh, for instance, California passes all these bills, and basically they repeal the laws that prohibit housing discrimination. So even though the federal government has passed things like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, states are trying to figure out ways to get around it. Uh, likewise, blockbusting in neighborhoods were basically... It's thought that if an African-American moves into an otherwise white neighborhood, it's going to tank the property values... Uh, this actually begins man being manipulated by uh, unscrupulous real estate agents. Basically, you have white real estate agents who are going to hire a black family to pretend to look to be, you know, pretend to look to buy a house in a neighborhood, 
Uh, basically, you know, that scares the white people who own houses in that neighborhood into selling well below market value. Then the real estate agent is able to sell to black families way above market value because they argue, oh, no, this is a white neighborhood. You know, you can go in there. And it just becomes very strong with the white resistance. Um, you know, private academies pop up everywhere, country clubs, you know, all sorts of things, all sorts of massive resistance, not just in the South. However, in the South, George Wallace who'd been the governor of Alabama, is running on pretty much the segregation party. Um, it's not actually called the segregation party, but pretty damn close. His, his uh, catchphrase is segregation now, segregation forever. Uh, he is actually polling pretty well against Johnson in 1964. He actually runs in 1968 on his own party. Uh, he's doing pretty well in 65. It looks like maybe Wallace might get the Democratic nomination from Johnson. Remember, most of the segregationists in the South are Democrats. They've been Democrats since, I don't know, Thomas Jefferson or something. And now, you know, because Johnson is viewed as a race traitor, you know, he even says whenever he passes the Civil Rights Act that we might have delivered the South to the Republicans for a very long time. Well, it hasn't happened quite yet, but it's about to. Uh, George Wallace, hardcore Southerner, uh, really campaigning on states' rights. Um, you know, states' rights in general but he's really saying, like, you know, we should we have the right to do whatever we want to. We're the majority in the state, even though they're not actually the majority in the state. Um, really a lot of appeals to white supremacy, uh, white privilege, you know, Anglo-Saxonness, whatever you want to call it. Now, somebody very early on who has more legacy after he dies than in life, and this is not to poo-poo anything he does in life, but his legacy really looms larger afterwards is Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X is also quite young when all this is going on. All this is quite young when it's going on, Malcolm X. Um, <clears throat> he's born Malcolm Little. Um, he very has, he has a very violent upbringing. Uh, he gets involved in um, you know, hustling and prostitution while being a pimp. Uh, you know, not quite drugs. You don't have drugs yet, but just other, like, you know, petty crime as a young man. Ultimately, he gets a 10-year prison sentence. He gets a 10-year prison sentence for his crimes, which he freely admits he is guilty of. And basically, in while in prison, he is introduced to the Nation of Islam. He is introduced to the teaching of Muhammad and also Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad is the founder of the Nation of Islam. A very common misconception is that Malcolm X founded or was the head of the Nation of Islam, neither of which is true. He was never the founder of the Nation of Islam, and he was never actually the head of the Nation of Islam. He was always the number two, but he was a very charismatic number two. He was a number two who got a lot of attention and really drew people away from Elijah Muhammad. Uh, what was interesting about Malcolm X early on, uh, he is actually killed in 1965. He's actually killed in 1965, so fairly young, fairly early on in this. Um, he gets a lot of attention because of he does not believe in nonviolence. Uh, he pretty much calls Martin Luther King and Uncle Tom. He says he's Uncle Tom. He says he's too conciliatory towards white people. Uh, he does not believe in integration. He's like, you know, maybe there's nothing part for us in integration. There's a famous line, uh, you know, we did not land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Uh, this idea being that African Americans were forced to come to the United States. They don't have any business being a part of United States society. Likewise, because of the hundreds of years of white people being horrible to African Americans, not just through slavery, but also through the 
you know, it, numerous instances of discrimination against African Americans, he thought that basically African Americans were better off not being with white Americans at all. Uh, not quite nationalism in the separatism sense. He doesn't necessarily say we need to like form our own nation or leave yet. However, he is arguing that uh, more cultural things should be, you know, less white integrated. There should be more distance from it. That's also part of the larger nation of Islam uh, mentality. Likewise, he doesn't believe in capitalism as expressed in the United States. He believes that uh, this is actually another larger nation of Islam tenet. He believes that the nation, uh, he believes that the United States is biased towards African Americans and the sense of capitalism. Uh, by playing the rules as they playing by the rules in the integrated market, there's no way for African Americans to get ahead. As such, they're, uh, the nation of Islam and Malcolm X, and the nation of Islam is still to this day actually technically. Uh, advocating uh, black separatism in terms of capitalism. Kind of similar to Garvey. Kind of similar to Garvey. Uh, you might see things like this uh, if you watch uh, Killer Mike, who's a rapper, did a, a great um, TV show on Netflix about this. A great sense of quite interesting. Basically this idea that you know, we should keep black dollars within the black neighborhood. Um, that's, that's also a problem when you get into the 1992 LA riots where uh, there's a lot of attacks uh, on on Korean groceries because they feel that these you know outsiders are coming into black neighborhoods and taking all the wealth from it. Uh, the Nation of Islam advocates, among many other things, uh, keeping separate in terms of their capitalism. Also, with dietary restrictions, they they keep a form of halal, which is um, I mean there there's the there's a very common um, stereotype of the Nation of Islam people as bean you know bean pie people. Because uh, they're theoretically vegetarian or halal, you know, they don't eat pork, that sort of thing. Likewise, if you see one more picture, you are going to see Malcolm X. Uh, he's only 40 when he dies. Likewise, Dr. King's only 39 when he dies. It's weird because you, uh, it, it's very common to think of uh, Dr. King as the elder statesman as opposed to the young firestart Malcolm X. But actually, Malcolm X is the younger, uh, sorry, is the elder individual. Uh, he gains a lot of popularity, all right? He gains a lot of popularity. He grows a lot of uh, lot of popularity, and that actually causes a lot of attention, uh, tension in within the Nation of Islam. Uh, Elijah Muhammad is still the head of the Nation of Islam during this time period. Uh, now it's Louis Farrakhan. But at this time period, Elijah Muhammad is the head of the Nation of Islam. Uh, Malcolm X is not the head of the Nation of Islam. He's in the number two. I'm trying to think of some sort of instance and movies or theater or TV or something where you have like the number one in charge, the number two is kind of charismatic and growing up and getting more popular. Uh, maybe like Lancelot and King Arthur, perhaps Lancelot and King Arthur, or if you want to go biblical, David and Absalom. Um, I don't know. You know what? Whenever you come to class, uh, <laughs> tell me what you think is a, is a better example of this. Uh, the best ones I could come up with Lancelot and, and King Arthur are perhaps uh, David and Absalom. But basically, he is very critical of Elijah Muhammad whenever he discovers that Elijah Muhammad is having affairs, also drinking alcohol, and pretty much Malcolm X. By the way, he changes his name from Malcolm Little to Malcolm X because he says Malcolm Little is a slave's name. He does not know what his true African name was, so he just puts an X instead. I should mention that. Uh, he starts criticizing Elijah Muhammad more, saying that Elijah Muhammad is a, is a hypocrite. Uh, after doing this, he changes his name to El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, which uh, his wife, his widow, Betty Shabazz, takes his new last name. He actually leaves the Nation of Islam in 1964, uh, forms the Organization for Afro-American Unity, uh, part of Muslim Mo Mosque, Inc., uh, 
uh, really starts trying to go larger with it. He really starts trying to go larger, trying to make it a more global thing. Uh, really starts trying to uh, link to African decolonization efforts, saying that there's something to be said for this. He also takes his Hajj to Mecca around this time. He takes his Hajj to Mecca. Uh, in Mecca, he meets Muslims of all different colors, and basically he starts leaning away from this idea that all white people are evil. Uh, very common in the nation of Islam, you know, the blue-eyed devils, this sort of idea. All white people are e evil. Uh, basically, after Malcolm X goes to Mecca, he meets all sorts of like white Muslims, and he's like, hey, you know, maybe not all white people are evil, just like all white Americans are evil. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's some, you know, white Muslims even in America who might be down for the struggle. Uh, he's softening a little bit on that. He's really trying to make a broader coalition with this. And he's actually assassinated on Valentine's Day 1965. This is not the Valentine's Day massacre. That was a, uh, that was a mafia thing in the Great Depression. With assassins, with ties to the Nation of Islam. Uh, that's a very interesting part of the whole Malcolm X story. Is that he is killed very young and pretty much on the cusp of him becoming very popular. Um, as a critic of, of Dr. King... He's really starting to get his traction in the national sense only about a year or so before he's assassinated. In fact, that's probably one of the reasons why he might be assassinated is because Elijah Muhammad doesn't really care for this um, young upstart figure who is very charismatic, drawing charisma away from him. And Elijah Muhammad might be afraid that he's ultimately going to lose the organization to Malcolm X after Malcolm X leaves. Um, so anyway, that is Malcolm X. Interesting. Uh, another, another guy who I think is a bit more interesting than Malcolm X, nothing against Malcolm X, but Stokely Carmichael. Uh, Stokely Carmichael is the originator of the phrase black power. And the thing with Stokely Carmichael is that he's a very dynamic figure. He, he kind of runs the gambit of going from one edge of, of the civil rights movement to another more extreme edge. This kind of begins with James Meredith. If, as you recall from last class, James Meredith was the first uh, African-American student at Ole Miss. Uh, causes a riot. You know, basically he tries to go in and the people don't like that. So Robert Kennedy has to send in the National Guard. Sorry, he sends in the U.S. Marshals. Some Marshals get killed. Then Kennedy sends the National Guard. <clears throat> in the midst of this, James Meredith, a couple years later, he decides in 1966... Uh, actually, I think it's 65, 65, 66, somewhere, somewhere in the mid-60s, that he is going to walk from the top of uh, Mississippi to the bottom, pretty much from Memphis to Biloxi, uh, arguing for civil rights, particularly voting rights. So it's basically supposed to be this one-man march. He's walking. You know, he's just walking, doing his thing. He's trying to get some media attention. Uh, fairly on, like he's he's in the Delta. He's barely a couple days outside of Memphis. Uh, he is shot by a white man. A white man shoots him. Uh, James Meredith does not die. James Meredith does not die, but he is severely injured. Uh, to finish the march, Snick, including Stokely Carmichael, and others complete the march. And apparently this really messes with Stokely Carmichael. Uh, Stokely Carmichael has been chair of Snick for a while. Uh, he is very much... Um, you know, very much involved in the early civil rights stuff, very much involved in this respectability idea. He's a very young man in this time period. I think he's just out of college. 
And, and he definitely has this idealism that maybe, just maybe, good things are going to happen. Just maybe good things are going to happen. We're going to work hard at this. And you know what? You know, we, yeah, Yes, it's idealistic, but something good can happen from it. And when he sees what happens to James Meredith, he is stunned. He's like, here's a guy who is walking unarmed for voting rights. You know, who, who on their right mind could be mad about voting rights? And yet he is shot and almost killed by a white guy. You know, Meredith is completely unarmed. He's, he's not a threat by any stretch. And he's like, this guy was shot for no reason, for acting for voting rights. And in a, in a speech that Carmichael gives to supporters pretty much outside of Meredith's um, hospital, where he's saying basically, hey, we're going to move on, the movement's moving on, he says, you know, we're, you know, we're, you know, power to this. And he, he uses the phrase black power. He uses the phrase black power for the first time, which catches on like wildfire. This idea, there's a really strong push among the younger generation of African-Americans that, you know what? Just being respectable is getting us beat. Like James Meredith was just going to make a walk from Memphis to Biloxi or Jackson, depending on you know where he wanted to go. I've heard some people say he was going to Biloxi. I've heard others say that it was going to be a Jackson, so whichever. You know, he's, he's just walking and he gets shot. Why should we do this? You know, are we ever going to have real peace with white people if they're going to do this to us? And he really makes it more radical. He says SNCC really has no more positions for white people. He also says some pretty sexist stuff against women. Uh, I'm not going to lie about that. Uh, Carmichael, it might have been a joke. Uh, whenever he's asked, why are there no women in leadership positions in SNCC? You know, what is the position for women in SNCC? His one-word response was prone. Now, some of y'all might not get that, but the word prone means on your back. It's pretty much a sexual jest. Um, might have been joking, more than likely, but it really struck a chord with women involved in SNCC who are like, you know, we make up a lot of the membership but you're not giving us leadership positions. We'll talk about that in class. That's some of the, that's a long criticism of the civil rights movement is that it does it's not very fair towards women. Um, it's not very fair towards women. Also, it can be very chauvinistic. Uh, SNCC does ultimately fire its white staff members after this. Basically, Carmichael's like, we're not getting involved with um, you know interracial cooperation. He actually leaves the organization shortly thereafter. Uh, same thing with CORE. Uh, CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, fires white members. They say, you know what? At the end of the day, we need to do this ourselves. We can't be involved with white people. White people try to take too much credit. Uh, they can blend in too much. And honestly, we're still getting beaten up. So what are we getting by working with white people? No thanks. We'll do it on their own. If you go over one slide, you're going to see Stokely Carmichael. Uh, eventually does change his name to Kwame Ture, basically to as two African leaders. Uh, he ultimately moves to Ghana, he, uh, Guinea. He ultimately moves to Guinea, and he pretty much stays there. He does do some touring that, here and there afterwards, but he spends most of his later life outside of the United States. So black power, th this phrase of black power, it promotes black political and economic strength. Um, the, the big word, thing I want you to think about is assertiveness. Like, it's a sense of pride and just like, you know what, you're not going to belittle me. I am going to be proud of myself. I'm proud of being black. You're not going to shame me for being black. I'm going to be defiantly black. I will be all black up in your face. Now, some critics of this decry it as reverse racism. Uh, they they uh, they call it they they like you know what this is going to be uh, racism. It's 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 racism. You know it's reverse racism. You're you know you're accusing uh, white people of doing this to you by saying that they're going to be better. Now you're talking black supremacy. This sort of idea. Uh, also, he does start doing a political party. Basically, he kind of makes his own little political party. 
It's called the uh, Lodens County Freedom Party, and they use a snarling Black Panther as the logo. This is not the Black Panther Party. Uh, the Black Panther Party comes back later. Um, it, that is going to be in Oakland, California. You're going to hear about that in that separate podcast. I'm going to talk about the Black Panther Party some, of course, but... Um, the, the the use of the Black Panther though as like the symbol of Black Pride, Black Power is something that almost predates the Black Panther Party, and it's also kind of interesting because the comic book The Black Panther comes out around the same time as well with the Black Panther Party, and there's always a bit of contention about which comes first and which one inspires the name of another. Uh, I will say though that the idea of the Black Panther as a symbol for Black Pride had been around for a little bit before the Black Panther Party and the uh, Black Panther comic book. Now, Carmichael, whenever he hears people say that it's reverse racism, he says, no, 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 this is positive self-identity, racial pride, and really independent political and economic power. He says that basically, um, you know, th- th- this, is, this, is, this is us being, you know, we are, we are now pro-white. Uh, King is kind of supportive of part of this, I, I should mention. Uh, that's a, that's a very common misconception of King is that he is hundred percent against black power. Uh, he's okay with the positive aspects of it. You know, this idea of, you know, self-expression, self-identity, cultural pride, pride, be, pride in being black. Uh, he is for that. Some of the other things, basically the, the sheer separatism of it all, uh, King is not for. Uh, likewise, this is something that's Carmichael and kind of this black power movement tries to do. They want this to be, and here's something we can talk about in class. It wants to be pro-black, but not anti-white, if that makes any sense. Basically, it's like, we're not going to other white people. We're not going to demonize white people. They, you know, yes, we'll demonize racist, but white people in general, they're okay. They're trying to live their own life. Let them be. Let them do their own thing. Just keep them out of our way. If that makes sense. They're not saying anything about like, you know, we need to kill the whitey, that sort of thing. Not shit at least. Well, not the Black Power movie. As you'll see, that uh, that phrase comes back a little bit later. Actually, let's talk about it right now. H. Rap Brown. He becomes chairman of SNCC after uh, Carmichael leaves. He becomes a bit more uh, militant about it. Uh, his most famous quote is basically he tells a meeting of SNCC that, quote, Black people need to get guns and kill them some honkies. Kill, kill the, sorry, get some guns and kill the honkies. Uh, they start using the term pig to, uh, to, to, to describe police. Um, the podcast about the Black Panther Party actually talks a little bit about why they use the term pig. Uh, it says that violence is as American as apple pie, basically saying that, uh, you know, it's, it's quite American to be violent. You know, we're, we're founded upon revolution. And basically, if African-American wants to be violent, they're, they're living their American right. Uh, likewise, he is arrested in Cambridge, Maryland, after he tells a, a crowd, uh, quote, black folks built America, and if America don't come around, we're going to burn America down. Uh, very inflammatory language uh, from SNCC, which only, you know, three or four years earlier was advocating for, you know, sit-ins and the March on Washington. Now you have Rap Brown becoming much more radical. This really, really um, alienates a lot of white support. A lot of the respectability factor kind of goes away because they're being just so adamant about, you know, violence. Uh, the National Council of Churches also. So this is another kind of interesting one that happens. Uh, basically, the churches kind of uh, move away from this, uh, you know, this respectability of it. Um, you know, Benjamin Payton, for instance, he is one of these leaders in here. He argues that uh, churches should be more involved with economic development 
and that uh, there should be black caucuses within uh, white churches, which was done by James Foreman, uh, also of SNCC in this time period, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He says that, you know what, churches should be more involved with economic development, which is not too radical, I'll admit. You know, the African-American church has been a staple in black communities for a long time now. Uh, his next thing, though, is kind of uh, where he loses a lot of support amongst the white churches. Uh, basically, Foreman demands that white churches pay half a billion dollars in reparations. Uh, not the federal government. We've talked about that last class, about the idea of, uh, of reparations and, you know, w what it is. You know, is, is, it, is it a feasible thing? Uh, Foreman says basically, yes, we should get reparations, but not just from the government. We should get it from churches. He says that churches were the recipients of slave labor. Uh, they benefited from, you know, racial exploitation. Even if they weren't actually slaveholders themselves, white churches got a lot of money and wealth from it. Uh, this really alienated a lot of church people, particularly white church people. Um, some of the black churches disagree with this for obvious reasons, but um, basically this idea that, you know, oh, the movement is getting too radical for me, it really starts spreading around. This is really felt in the Black Panther Party. This is the one you know you wanted to hear about. This is the one we're going to talk about, the Black Panther Party. Like I said, I'm not going to go into too much depth because the other podcast uh, does a pretty good job of it, and I think it's quite interesting. Black Panther Party is founded in Oakland, California in October 1966 by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. Its full name is the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Uh, Newton and Seale are both transplants from the South. Uh, Newton is from around Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, Bobby Seale is from around East Texas. Uh, so they're very much transplants to California. Uh, they're also part of this first generation of African-Americans who are really going to school, uh, to college, I should say. Uh, they're going to a community college right outside Berkeley that is like doing more black studies things, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, they really, in, you know, embrace black nationalism. They also really embrace some elements of Marxist-Leninist, which I think is one of the reasons why they are viewed so dangerously. Um, I don't. Uh, the, the podcast argues, the other podcast argues, that uh, what made them so appealing was they, they were willing to work across lines. You know, they could make a bigger coalition. Uh, there's no way to put it slightly. The, the Black Panther Party was definitely a Marxist party. It was definitely, they weren't full-on communist, but they were definitely about, you know, maybe redistribution of wealth, uh, overturning some parts of capitalism, you know, instituting socialism, uh, really keen on ending police brutality. That seems to be the number one thing that that is early on. Uh, one of the first things they do is they would uh, arm themselves and like kind of patrol neighborhoods and whenever they saw police arresting somebody, they would come by with their guns, open carry, and just start, you know, advising the person being arrested of their rights. Uh, this is before Miranda. Uh, the Miranda case is basically where the police, you know, have to tell you, you're, you know, you have the right to remain silent, all these things. Uh, Black Panther Party does not cause that, but uh, it's part of, the, part of the ether around there. Uh, Eldridge Cleaver is another one of these individuals who gets involved with it. He, puts, he does a book called Soul and Ice in 1968. Uh, basically argue that black people are victims of colonization. Uh, says that we need to be liberated, not integrated. He says basically African-Americans need to be like set free of this society. Why would you want to be integrated into a society that's always going to have you as a second-class citizen? Uh, he does get arrested in Oakland after a shootout with the police. And that's, that's something that happens to a lot of these early members of the Black Panther Party. 
Uh, for instance, baby, not not baby Huey, not Huey Newton, but there's another one. He's only like 17 years old who is shot and killed by police during a Black Panther Party shootout. Um, the, the Panthers are very young. That is something else I'll mention about the Panthers. They are very young. They are incredibly young when they're all there, whenever they're doing this. Um, you know, whenever you think of the Black Panther Party, at least the early Black Panther Party, uh, don't think of, you know, grizzled folks. Uh, these, are, these are kids. These are people your age, if not a little younger, honestly. As you can see, there's a Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, you know, they, the, this kind of militant black beret. Um, yes, they, they took the logo from the uh, Lodes County Freedom Organization. Also, the comic book was coming around this time period, too. But still, they're the ones who made it popular. They're the ones that is really large. Uh, really combines black nationalism with Marxist-Leninism. Not full-on communist. They are not full-on communist. That is something that gets them a lot of attention, though, by, if you go over one more slide, the FBI. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was utterly convinced that the Black Panther Party was the most dangerous party in America, more than anything else. He was, he was, he was utterly convinced that the Black Panther Party would be the cause of more uncertainty and destruction of the United States than anything else, bigger than the, the real Communist Party, bigger than you know, the Viet Cong, bigger than the student organizations, all these different things. Now, why he believes that, it's kind of complicated. I mean, maybe because of the Marxist-Leninist thing, maybe he's aware just how bad African-Americans are being treated and, um, you know, this, this type of militancy might appeal to African-Americans who feel, you know, slighted after a kind of milquetoast civil rights movement that has already happened. Um, there is the fear that African-Americans would go strong towards communism, which, as we've discussed before, a bit overblown, like as we saw in the 1930s, um, African-Americans, they tend not to go for communism as much because, well, religion is a big reason. Also, the desire for some capitalist things. Now, I should mention, I, I should mention the Black Panther Party is not just doing violent stuff. Um, in fact, they're mostly not doing violent stuff. Most of the stuff is, you know, they're armed, but they're not like actively killing folks. Uh, they start doing schools. They start making schools for unschooled populations, particularly in places like Oakland, uh, black neighborhoods. Uh, they discover pretty early on that if you don't have anything to eat, it's kind of hard to learn. So they start providing breakfast and other health care uh, to students. They also start doing some early drug uh, education. Just the idea that basically like, hey, um, here's a drug. Here's what it does. If you find somebody who ODs on this, here's what you need to do. Um, drug awareness is actually not that high before this time period. Still, Hoover is utterly convinced that, um, you know, the Black Panther Party is going to be the party that is going to, you know, cause more damage to America than any other one. Uh, he's really afraid of what he terms the Black Messiah, which is something that you're going to hear about in the other one. Or if you watch the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, this idea that, you know what, from the Black Panther Party was going to emerge this kind of like black figure who's going to unify the black population and really have a hardcore rebellion or something against the United States, you know, latch on to communism. Remember, the Cold War is 100% behind all this stuff. Uh, and so basically Hoover is terrified that it's going to come from the Black Panther Party. Uh, that's why Fred Hampton, whenever you hear about him, uh, you know, the, the Black Messiah supposedly, he is the individual that uh, is killed through counterpro. Uh, counterintelligence... Cohen, Cohen or Pro, whatever you want to call it. 
uh, I always call it, call it CounterPro, but that's really not the real name for it. Uh, CointelPro. Basically, FBI is infiltrating the crap out of black nationalist groups. Like, they're getting as many CIs as possible. And this is not, like, a conspiracy theory. There are unclassified documents that you can find right now that really shows in that basically they're going to destroy black nationalist groups by any means necessary, by, quote, expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalists, hate-type organizations and groupings, their leadership, spokesmen, membership, supporters, and encounter their propensity for violence and civil disorder. Basically, they are going to work with local officials to discredit leaders. Uh, the main thing is they use is undercover agents. Basically, they are going to get somebody, you know, get a young black youth who is, you know, kind of gotten on a mild charge. You know, um, I believe in Judas and the Black Messiah, it's he, he, he is a, uh, stolen a car. And basically, they get them to flip. They're like, hey, look, uh, you're, you know, you're facing some jail time. You could get no jail time if you work with us and try to get this individual, even though you know the person may or may not have any involvement with the Black Panthers whatsoever. Um, also, some other members of, of Pro, they really try to make the groups more radical. They really start advocating for more violence, so it would disillusion themselves and the organization would be viewed as more violent altogether. Uh, interesting thing. It's not just the Black Panther Party, even though the Black Panther is by far the recipient of most of these. Um, it, it, it's comical how much of Counter Pro is within the Black Panther Party. But this idea period that it's actually, you know, they're actually undercover agents who are not really down with the struggle, who are pushing it towards more violence. Now, there's plenty more to say about the Black Panther Party. Listen to the other podcasts. It's pretty interesting. Uh, prisoners' rights. Prisoners' rights is another form of black militancy that comes about. Uh, if you don't know, the prison population of the United States is way higher for African Americans uh, per capita than pretty much anything else, particularly in like some southern states like Louisiana, where the king of imprisoning people. A uh, lot of black prisoners, way out of proportion to the population, really unfair sentences, really bad, 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 bad conditions. And basically, um, a lot of black activists are arguing that, look, black people are being sent to jail for like political reasons or drug crimes or things that are, well, not quite drug crimes yet. War on drugs has happened yet. But they, they said that African Americans are being unfairly sentenced and good God, you know, the, the prison conditions are just awful. They are just awful. And so they do have some various riots that come about. Most famous is the Attica riot, which happens in 71. Uh, basically arguing that prisoners are being mistreated, they're being you know jailed too hard, and they're being having way too cruel treatment once they get to these prisons. You also have a whole swath of riots that happen in this time period. In the mid-60s, uh, something you need to be thinking about at the same time is a ton of inner-city riots happen in this time period. Uh, there's the Watts riot, which is early on, but also the Detroit's riot. And there's a lot of these different riots. Now, why do they happen? Well, a lot of underlying causes. First one is white flight. All right? there, there's white flight. Uh, you know, basically, white people don't want to leave in the, move, live in these cities anymore uh, because they're becoming more integrated. They're afraid it's going to destroy their neighborhoods or destroy their property values. So they're leaving for the suburbs, which are, you know, you need to have a car to be there. Uh, they might be under a country club or something or have a have a, a, a pact where, you know, they will not sell to black people. There's a growing sense of alienation amongst African-Americans who feel that, hey, 
you know, the federal government's supposed to help us, but now the individual cities and the states aren't doing anything to help us. Uh, very high levels of poverty. That's that's something that never really changes for African Americans throughout U.S. history. Um, disproportionately high level of poverty, also substandard housing. And particularly in this time period, uh, there's very high unemployment for African Americans. The African American uh, unemployment rate was about double that of uh, white people. And the problem is, in spite of all these nice Civil Rights Act laws that were passed and voting rights, like social, educational, and economic like, disparages were never getting rid of. Like, nothing is going to solve that. The high school dropout rate starts increasing amongst African Americans uh, because they don't feel, what's the point of going to school? You know, I'm not going to be able to get a job. It's just, you're jumping through hoops for no reason. And same thing with crime and drug use. Uh, basically, crime starts going higher and drug use starts going higher because of a sense of just this nihilism. Nothing really matters. Everything sucks. You know, this system is not made for us. If you go over one slide, you're going to see a picture of the Detroit riot, what happened in 67. Uh, all these riots are really based upon uh, underlying economic and social injustice. Uh, for instance, Watts. Uh, Watts is a neighborhood in Los Angeles. In fact, technically, it's its own little separate city. Uh, Los Angeles, as you know it, is not just the one city of Los Angeles. There's tons of little cities in there. Watts is one of them. Uh, Watts is one of these areas that really grew during World War II because of the... Um, you know, manufacturing jobs, wartime manufacturing. However, after the war is over, there's a manufacturing downturn, and there's really nowhere else for African-Americans to go. There's, you know, no new great migration. So pretty much they stay in a place like Watts, which, by the way, Los Angeles doesn't have official segregation, but they have that informal kind, which pretty much every city has. Watts was very uh, overcrowded. It's very poor. Um, it's got about a 98% black population, about 30% of the black men are unemployed. It's overcrowded, uh, has like no healthcare facilities, bad public transit, a lot of crime, a lot of drug addiction. Now making things not any better is the Los Angeles police department. Um, I mentioned before the Los Angeles had not had that high of a black population before the great migration. When the African-American population moves into Los Angeles, the police chief, uh, I go into much more detail about this in my uh, rap history class, but the police chief of Los Angeles says straight up, hey, I need police officers who know how to, quote unquote, deal with black people. So he starts going hardcore to the South. He starts like recruiting black police officers and black police, um, you know, lieutenants and, you know, made, you know ch chiefs, things like that to set it up, you know, deal with black people, quote-unquote, the way that they need to be dealt with. Los Angeles has a very, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Southern, violent, like that same sort of mentality in the police department. And you have this idea that basically the police is harassing African Americans more than disproportionately necessary. Um, that is something that we could talk about because police brutality is still an issue people talk about. And, you know, police being uh, the perception that police are more violent towards African-Americans is something we will definitely talk about in class. And, and the thing you need to realize about a riot, it's never just that one occurrence, okay? Because what causes this is basically um, in 1965, August 11th, it's a hot, hot night, uh, a young man, young black man, is driving under the influence. He's, he's swerving a little bit. And basically, a police officer pulls him over to check him for drunk driving. However, the police officer roughs him up a little bit too much. There's a crowd outside. Uh, basically, they start gathering. They start harassing the police officer for, for harassing the motorist. And a riot ensues. 
This goes on for six days. This goes on for six days. Uh, 34 people are killed. About 900 plus are injured. And about 4,000 people are arrested. And the thing is, this was not the first time the police had pulled over somebody and got a little rough with them. I mean, that's something you need to realize. I think we talked about that a couple classes ago. But the thing with police brutality in African-American communities, it's never about the one instance. It's about, a, it's about this idea that this is a perpetual thing. We can talk about this more in class. I mean, I don't want to get too, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too much into this because I'm sure you all have thoughts about this. So we'll just stop on that. Uh, what Watts also does is it really seems to um, put a damper on the civil rights movement, uh, really change the perception of the civil rights movement. You know, the idea that white people are like, oh my gosh, you know, why are they being so violent? You know, why are they burning their own neighborhood? That's something that you're going to hear. Oh yeah, Watts, like, they, they set things on fire because of this. You know, that, that's something you're going to hear often. It's like, why are they destroying their own neighborhood? Almost though, like, African Americans are dumb or primitive or animals or something because they get really mad and then they destroy their own stuff. This also happens in Newark, uh, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, Newark, New Jersey is uh, kind of in the uh, NYC, you know, metro area. Uh, it's another majority black city. It also had been having some issues for a while. Unemployment was high. The school system was getting worse and worse. Uh, police brutality was going up. You know, whenever basically African-Americans complained about it, the police like had deaf ears. They really did nothing about it. So on July 12th, 1967, there's a black cab driver who was uh, taken to police custody, and he was beaten. He was beaten. And basically, word of this comes out, and they gather at the police station where the officer is being held, which is right near a housing project. Uh, while the riot is going on, a firebomb is thrown, hits the wall of the police station. Uh, the, you know, the fire doesn't go that much, but it's enough to scare the crap out of the policemen who come out, billy clubs, beating the crud out of everybody. You know, for, you know, they, I mean, they were scared for having a firebomb thrown at them, but... Like I said, much deeper things going on here. Uh, it's about a four-day riot. It's about a four-day riot. Uh, kills about 27 people in those four days. Uh, once again, this is a majority African-American neighborhood and actually has the highest unemployment rate amongst black men in the nation, which is crazy because it's right near New York City, which is a major industrial area, which has a lot of jobs in general. That's why people move to big cities is because there are jobs there. And yet Newark really doesn't have that much going on for African-Americans. Uh, when the federal government does reports of this and uh, and Watts, they, they, they say that one of the reasons is because of the high unemployment rate. Uh, another big one is the Detroit riot of 1967. This is the most deadly one. This is the most deadly one. Detroit, we can talk about this in class, has a long history of, good goodness, a um, lot of racial stuff going on in New York. Housing discrimination, job opportunities, things like that. Uh, basically what happens is on July 23rd, there's a police raid on what's called a blind pig, which is an illegal bar. Um, you know, theoretically you have to have a liquor license, have a bar. This is a bar in an African American community, uh, neighborhood in New York. Uh, the police raid the bar. That's not too surprising, but they're like, why are you harassing us? You know, we're just drinking. There's nothing wrong with this. And so basically they start, you know, harassing the police a little bit more because of the harassment that they received. Uh, goes on for quite a while, five days. It's one of 59 different riots that occurred in 1967, but Detroit was by far the deadliest. Uh, 43 African-Americans are killed, most of them by members of the National Guard who were sent in by George Romney, who was the governor of Michigan during this time period. If the last name Romney sounds familiar, Mitt Romney's his son. 
The Detroit riot, they also do studies on this, and it also showed that housing discrimination and income inequality is one of the reasons why this occurred. You know, had it not been for this sense of helplessness from bad job opportunities and horrible living conditions, you know, being raided by the police would not necessarily equate um, a large-scale riot. That's something you need to be thinking about whenever you hear about these riots, whenever you talk about these riots. Rarely are they just about the occurrence in question. Most of the time, it's about a larger, you know, the crimes that don't get on the news, that sort of thing. That happens a lot in the 1992 uh, Los Angeles riot. The Mm -hmm. L.A. riots, that's the biggest riot in U.S. history, actually. The Rodney King riots. Uh, Rodney King had led police on a very long police chase. He was drunk. I think he was also on some drugs. Um, That's not really in question. You know, the fact that he was beaten by police and that was on videotape. Uh, nobody was arguing that like Rodney King was innocent of drunk driving or driving under the influence. They just said, you know, is it worth it? But then again, he had drove for a couple hours, you know, on a police chase. That's where it gets more complicated because it's not just about the Rodney King stuff. It's about other occurrences that may not get on the news. In response to all these, the Kerner commission is done. All right. And the Kerner commission uh, appointed by Lyndon Johnson, basically he wants to study what is going on with um, why are we having all these riots? Why are we having all these riots? And the Kerner Commission, basically it concludes its final report in 1968. Uh, basically it says that white racism is the underlying cause of these riots. Quote, Negroes firmly believe that police brutality and harassment occur repeatedly in Negro neighborhoods. This idea that like, you know, this idea that um, you know, police violence is occurring all the time, it's not being reported, very anecdotal evidence is something that is causing a lot of these riots. Uh, Kerner also warned that America was moving toward two societies, one white, one black, separate and unequal. Uh, another, another good quote from this, quote, physical abuse is only one source of aggravation in the ghetto, and nearly every city surveyed, the commission heard complaints of harassment of interracial couples, dispersal of street gatherings, and the stopping of Negroes on foot or in cars without objective basis. Basically, the Kerner mission is saying, look, there is some stuff going on here, and if we don't, like, solve these basic economic social, you know, housing injustices, we're going to have a much worse society. And to his credit, Johnson tries. Uh, Johnson tries with his war on poverty, part of the Great Society. Uh, Great Society is basically Johnson's version of the New Deal. Lyndon Johnson is a very, 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 very interesting cat. He's a very interesting cat. Um, He is a Southern Democrat, he is very much a Southern Democrat, but he's also not really racist, but he does use the N-word because he's a Southern Democrat of a certain age, but he really has this, like, heart for, like, the disadvantage and the powerless. He says, you know, we, we should help African Americans because they are Americans. You know, we're only hurting ourselves if we kind of hurt them. The Great Society has a lot of different uh, elements of it. A lot of these things that it gets pushed through are things like Medicare, which is, you know, to help people. Um, with uh, you know medical care, uh, giving aid to education, um, with things like Head Start and other funding for education, a lot of community action programs, uh, really to aid black people, specifically poor black people, poor people in general, but black people specifically, in design and implementation. Because he is directly targeting urban centers. He is <coughs> directly targeting urban centers. He says, you know, that's where the poor people are. That's where we could have the most bang for our buck. You know, yes, there are poor people living in Appalachia, but, you know, the facilities to build a Head Start school or to build, like, a free clinic, we're going to reach a lot more people if we do it in the middle of the city, and a lot of those people happen to be brown, 
Uh, Johnson's okay with it. He's kind of being utilitarian about it. That gets a lot of criticism. A lot of local politicians feel threatened by all this. Um, all this. They think the federal government is overstepping, basically saying that you know a, a area cannot decide for themselves where they want their resources. Now the federal government is mandating where these resources get spent. Uh, they're also critical of the handouts. They said that it's going to make people more dependent upon the government. You know, once you have your um, welfare programs, this is where some of our first welfare programs come from, they say that it's going to make people, you know, lazy, less inclined to work, or less inclined to follow the law because you're reducing police presence. Uh, they also, the idea that, you know, you're raising too much expectations of black people in this, which is kind of an interesting one. Uh, believe it or not, black people feel betrayed by this, uh, mainly because of the backlash. They think that Johnson is giving lip service, he's doing too little too late, there are, you know, whenever they start thumbing their nose at the laws, uh, Johnson is not really sending in the federal authorities as strong as he could. Uh, a lot of African-Americans do feel betrayed by Johnson. You know, they're like, hey, it's a good start. It's not enough. Also, Johnson's personal character, which remember, he is a Southern black man who is a Southern black man who is, like, you know, of a certain age. Uh, also, they do things like Job Corps, which is basically to like you know give people a chance to you know go out and get a job. The uh, you know Peace Corps thing like that provide people an opportunity. Now Johnson wanted to do a lot more with this. The problem is Vietnam. Uh, yeah, Johnson had a quagmire in Vietnam, and believe it or not, this actually goes on African American issues as well. Why do we get involved in Vietnam? Ignore this slide. Uh, containment doctrine. You know containment theory. Domino theory. Uh, we're trying to stop uh, the communists from taking over another country. We have been involved in Vietnam for quite a while, ever since Dien Bien Phu, which was whenever the French were defeated by the Vietnamese, who were led by Ho Chi Minh. Basically, we sent advisors and stuff to South Vietnam as early as Eisenhower. However, the leader of South Vietnam is kind of a jerk who not really has the U.S. best interest at heart. And so he's killed, um, not by the U.S., but by his generals. But the U.S. says, you know, if that happens, we're not going to be too upset about it. By the time we get to Johnson, uh, the escalation of troops in Vietnam goes more and more. Uh, Johnson feels like his hands are tied. He feels that, you know, he has to keep up Kennedy's legacy here. So they start bombing the North Vietnamese. And then he starts sending in American troops uh, using the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Basically, some uh, U.S. destroyers were supposedly attacked in the waters outside of uh, Vietnam. Basically, he skips through a declaration of war saying we need to send in American troops to South Vietnam because that's not a war, that's just helping out the defense of an ally. Uh, we could get into much more of Vietnam, maybe we'll later. Let's talk about the African-American part of it. Uh, African-Americans get involved in Vietnam. Uh, in the mid-1960s, uh, about, you know, only 10% of the armed forces is African-American. Uh, this increases quite a bit during the Vietnam War. Uh, this goes up even higher in the Gulf War, wherever you know, about 25% of the uh, military is African-American. That's disproportionately high. Uh, why is it disproportionately high? Well, the draft is kind of skewed towards helping uh, white people get out of the draft. Um, the draft was around. It was very common to get drafted in this time period. There was a draft going on. Uh, some African-Americans did serve out of patriotism. Uh, the main, and also because of, you do get a chance to like have educational and vocational opportunities, absolutely. The problem is, if you don't want to go to war, if you get drafted and you want to get out of draft, the main way to get that done 
is to be in college. If you're in college, you can get a deferment. If you're a student in good standing, you know, student or grad student, undergrad or grad student, you can get out of being in the military. Now, what's the number one way to do this in this time period? Have money. Uh, middle, middle and upper class people are the ones who tend to go to college in this time period. Yes, there was the GI Bill. Yes, after you're in the military, you can get into college and your college will be paid for. But paying for college without the military is generally something done by upper class people uh, who tend to be white. And basically, they're able to get a deferment. That's why the army is seen to be disproportionately poor and disproportionately black during Vietnam. Pretty much Johnson says that Vietnam destroys the uh, Great Society, his whole plans, because wars cost money, and the Vietnam War cost a lot of money. Um, the war gets escalated quite a bit. They start you know, saying that, hey, we are spending so much money, so much resources trying to bomb and kill the North Vietnamese. Johnson believed the nation's honor was at stake. If we were to pull out of Vietnam, how could our allies ever trust us? Uh, at first, it looks like the U.S. might be winning this. This changes totally by the Tet Offensive. Uh, the Tet Offensive happens, uh, it's like 67, it's like it's, it's Vietnamese New Year. Basically, the North Vietnamese go through the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is through Laos and Cambodia, into Vietnam. Uh, the U.S. is only allowed to be in South Vietnam. They're not allowed to go into North Vietnam because that'd be an act of war, which we cannot do because technically we're just talking about the South Vietnamese. Uh, basically, it's a major psychological war for the, uh, for the Americans. Really a big blow for uh, Johnson. This pretty much ends Johnson's presidency. Pretty much straight up ends Johnson's presidency. Uh, Johnson says he is not going to run for re-election because it gets too big and it kind of taints Johnson's legacy. Meanwhile, Dr. King is really trying to find a new strategy. Um, he's still around in this time period. He's not killed until 1968. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he's found out that he doesn't really have a place. Um, a lot of white people think he's a dangerous radical. You know, it's people who don't really like him in the first place. They don't care for him very too much. However, most of the civil rights movement has kind of moved towards a further extreme, toward a militant extreme. They think he's an ineffectual moderate. You could just call him Uncle Tom, because a lot of people did in this time period, involved in the African-American side of black power. Uh, King decides, you know what, I'm going to move to Chicago. I'm going to move to Chicago. Um, I'm going to, you know, try to do some campaigns here. I've been based in the South beforehand. We need to go to Chicago, uh, specifically about housing. He says, we need to fix housing in Chicago. He's like, you know what? This could be my new cause. I'm going to go up there. And believe it or not, he actually finds that in Chicago, he has more anger and violence against him. Uh, it's way more hatred, way more hostility found in Chicago against King than he ever found in the South. He even said, like, you know, in the South, like, people would let you know that they were against you. They'd, they'd yell at you, they'd, they'd call you names, but they'd be pretty upfront about the fact that they were against you. He's like, in Chicago, people would just hit you. They, they, they wouldn't do anything to you. In fact, it's in Chicago that a brick gets thrown at his head. Um, it actually hits him. He gets hit with a brick. Uh, that never happens in the South. He never get, happens in the South. He's like, wow, uh, racism is way deeper than I thought. You know, racism is very much found in the North. And becomes more convinced that racism is tied to economics. That is something that really denotes King's later um, career as a political rights guy, is that later, later in life, he's more convinced that uh, it's all about economics for civil rights issues. Which is why he becomes the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign is kind of his last you know, real thing. 
you know, he wants to get a march on Washington with basically poor people coming together. Uh, wants a lot of different things, including like a you know guaranteed job or like a guaranteed almost universal income, universal basic income, which is uh, something they're talking about nowadays still. He's also becoming more critical of the war in Vietnam. He even speaks out adamantly against Vietnam. He says, you know, going to Vietnam is not going to help us, African-Americans. Uh, the Vietnamese are trying to do their own thing. Um, you know, why should we Why should we get involved with this? We're just going to spend money on this that we should have spent on helping out African-Americans. This actually alienates Johnson. Johnson had been a supporter of King. And even some of the president's black supporters. Like, there is some support for the Vietnam War, at least early on amongst the black community. So as this is going on, King is becoming more and more disliked in the United States. About a month or two before he dies, there's a poll of, you know, who's the most hated man in America. And actually, King's at the top of the list. Uh, he's viewed as too radical now. But the radical movement of the Black Party, the Black, the black radical movements, uh, they think him too ineffectual. Um, he's actually murdered in Memphis in 1968 when he's trying to do, he's, he's kind of uh, negotiating a sanitation worker strike. Uh, basically, he's trying to have the uh, workers of pretty much all the garbage men in Memphis were black. And he's like, you know what? We should join a union. We should make him go on strike. Basically, um, he, he goes to Memphis a couple times to you know, tell, the striker, tell the strikers about this. On uh, April 3rd, 1968, he actually goes to Memphis another time. He gives his final speech, which, okay, it's very prophetic. He probably didn't know. I mean, he knew that he's probably going to get killed one day. He, he King was convinced that he would die young, and he was correct about that. But um, he, he's very prophetic about it. Basically, he, it's called I've Been to the Mountaintop, referring to Moses. He's like, guys, look, I've been to the mountaintop, and I'm probably not going to make it. He's like, you know, we're, we're probably going to have to work on without me. But, you know, I've seen the promised land. We're going to make it, but I'm probably not going to be there with you. Uh, the next day at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, uh, he is outside on the balcony smoking a cigarette, which is something he did not like the general public to know too much. He's smoking a cigarette. Uh, he is shot and killed by a man by the name of James Earl Ray. Now, here's the thing with that. Here's conspiracy theories. Um, James Earl Ray claimed he was set up. James Earl Ray said that he he didn't actually make the shot. He said basically he was a, he was a he was a pawn. He was a stoolie. Uh, he did have a gun, but he was like I'm not that good of a shot. And it was a weird shot, a weird angle. Like unless I was a crack shot, I could have made that. Uh, James Earl Ray claimed until he died that um, you know he was set up by the government. Um, and actually, believe it or not, some of members of King's family have met with Earl Ray before he died, and they said they believed him. They believed that he was not the one who killed Dr. King. It was probably the government. Was it? We don't know. What does happen is almost immediately, uh, there are a rash of riots among many cities. In fact, of the 10 most violent riots in U.S. history, five of them are after Dr. King dies. That's something you probably haven't heard about. But across the country, there are riots in black areas. More than 125 cities have uprisings. Uh, 46 people died, 35 were injured, and more than 20,000 have been arrested across the country. Uh, there's some in Chicago, Baltimore's got a very big one, uh, Atlanta's got some, Washington, D.C. has some, New York has some. Pretty much every major city you can imagine has riots after King is killed, uh, mainly because of this perception that, oh my God, they killed King. You know, he was the good one. He was the one that, like, he was a respectful one, and they killed him anyway. 1968 was a bad year for the United States in general, one of the many reasons why. 
Although Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 68 in Legacy of King, um, it's, it, it's almost seen as too little too late. Uh, let's talk about what's going on in the black student movement. Uh, black student movement, we talked about earlier. They're, you know, they're doing their thing with the, the sit-ins and things. Uh, they get way more militant after 1968, particularly after the Orangeburg Massacre. Uh, Colorado, sorry, not Colorado, South Carolina State College, HBCU, in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Basically, they were protesting a local bowling alley that was whites only. And whenever, uh, whenever you know, the, the, whenever the, the protests started getting higher, uh, basically Highway Patrol and National Guard were sent in, and three young people were killed. Uh, three unarmed young people were killed. Um, most of them were fairly young. The ones who died were 18 and 17. In fact, some of them were high school students. Uh, most of the people who were shot, and also there were 20 people who were injured, 28 were injured, three were killed, most of whom were shot in the back. Most of whom were shot in the back. So the idea being like, you know, it's not like, oh, the cops like, oh, yeah, you know, they were running towards me and I was afraid for my life. It was they were running away from me and I shot them to the crowd anyway. Basically shows us to the students that, hey, you being respectable is not going to work. If the cops are going to kill you. If the cop is going to shoot you anyway, they might as well shoot you in the front as you're charging towards them, not in the back as you're running away. Uh, this also changes. Um, there are some changes in colleges that happen because of this. Uh, for instance, the Black Studies Movement. The Black Studies Movement, uh, basically more schools start advocating classes. Basically, black students at white campuses say, we want to have more classes, more courses that talk about the African-American experience. Um, most schools are against this, however, because they want federal money, and the federal government bans discrimination. Uh, they are able to get this through, uh, basically arguing about the federal government needs to fund this. You have a lot of different African-American courses coming around in a lot of different colleges, a lot of whom have been primarily white beforehand or had just recently started letting white st black students in. A uh, key example is Nichols. Uh, Nichols only started allowing uh, black students in the early, actually mid-60s. Uh, I don't know if any of y'all remember Dr. Butler. Dr. Butler was here for a while. He was part of that first group of black students at Nichols. Uh, he actually had the office next to me for quite a while. Interesting guy. I like talking to him. He's not even that old. He's only in his like late 60s, early 70s. Um, yeah, he talked about being one of the first black students at Nichols. Later on, they start having more black studies classes and things like black history class. Hey, that's what this class is. Uh, basically, it's, you know, to show that there is, you know, things out there uh, that other than the Eurocentric basis for a lot of curriculum, particularly in things like history and art and literature and culture and things like that, you know, saying that, you know, a lot of these things assume a white basis. We should have things from a black basis. So in the midst of all this, the election of 1968 occurs. The election of 1968 occurs, and this is a weird one. This is a weird one uh, because basically Johnson says early on, I'm not running for re-election. I'm focusing everything on Vietnam. This is a total quagmire. Uh, I'm not running again. So the Democrats, uh, they run Eugene McCarthy, who is seen very far on the left. He's seen as the most uh, progressive. Could he possibly be? Could he possibly be communist? We don't know. And then you have Robert Kennedy, who's a centrist. Robert Kennedy is John F. Kennedy's brother. He had been attorney general for the United States. Uh, he is really building a multiracial coalition. He's really appealing hard towards African-Americans. The problem is that Kennedy is assassinated. He is assassinated 
in June of 1968, only a couple months after uh, Martin Luther King is killed. Uh, he is He's killed after he wins the uh, California primary, which would have pretty much all but sealed him up the nomination for the Democratic Party. So what you have is a messed up convention in 1968 where nobody actually has the uh, majority votes uh, for the Democrats. You have Eugene McCarthy. He's viewed as too leftist. Uh, Hubert Humphrey is kind of the compromise candidate who nobody likes. Hubert Horatio Humphrey, you can call him Triple H, but he's not a wrestler. Uh, Hubert Horatio Humphrey, he had been a vice president. He's a very moderate guy. There are riots in Chicago in 68, which seems to look bad on the whole movement. Not just African Americans, but the student movements and other movements have been going on in this time period. Uh, you have George Wallace running for the American Party, which is the segregation party. Uh, he gets a lot of Southern votes. In fact, in 68, he is the last person to get a third party uh, to get electoral college votes. He gets several Southern states, including Louisiana, because, of course, he did. And then you have the guy who wins, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon is an interesting cat. Richard Nixon can be a conundrum. He's theoretically good for African Americans. He's a lifelong member of the NAACP. Uh, still trying to say that, you know, he is uh, he's part of, you know, the people who want African Americans to do well. However, he endorses what's called the Southern Strategy. All right. The Southern strategy is basically he's like, I can get all these disaffected Southerners who feel violated or alienated by the Democratic Party by talking about things like states' rights, by limited government, small government. Nixon's devious. Nixon is very devious because he is never says anything directly against black people publicly. Now, once we get the Watergate tapes, he says all sorts of horrible things about black people behind closed doors. But publicly, he says nothing bad about black people. He's like, eh, you know, whatever. Yeah, they get their rights. Instead, he starts talking. I mean, it, this is there are documents, there are memos that say this is what Nixon was trying to do. He starts trying to appeal to Southern voters about small government. He says, you know, we don't need the Civil Rights Act. That's just, it's big government messing in people's affairs. So that's kind of the line that Nixon draws. And he's the first one who really gets Republicans in the South. He actually does win some Southern states in 68. Um, it really gets cemented by Reagan in 1980. Reagan is the one who really, really kind of buffers and shines up and really uses Nixon's uh, talk of, you know, don't be directly against African-Americans, but just talk about things like small government. Also really weakens the New Deal coalition. And he talks about like, you know, we're, we're spending too much money on federal programs. Let's start cutting things like all the great society programs. Uh, the Moynihan Report is another thing that basically this is arguing uh, that basically civil rights legislation is not going to help inner city problems. Uh, Daniel Moynihan is the one who does this. Basically, he's a Nixon advisor. He says that basically what is the cause of all the problems in, this, in the southern cities, you know, not, in, amongst African-American communities? It's different than the earlier reports. Remember the earlier reports? The Kerner Commission said it was economic stuff. He says, no, 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 no. It's not economic stuff. It's the breakdown of the family. He says the breakdown of the, of the black family is the reason behind all the higher crime and poverty and the increased drug use. He says too many black families are led by women. He says black men are unwilling or unable to be strong father figures. 
And, uh, you know, th- this is why everything's going bad in black neighborhoods. Uh, really placing the blame not on economics, but on the family structure. He says that putting people on welfare or family assistance plans, as they're called in this time period, uh, quote, retards the progress of the group. Uh, they mean retards in the sense of slow down. It says basically, if you put African-Americans on a federal aid program, they're not going to grow stronger in of themselves. It says that the matriarchal structure of African-American communities is the reason behind their antisocial behavior. It says that the black community had been in a, quote, matriarchal structure, which is because it's so out of line with the rest of American society, seriously retards the progress of the group as a whole and imposes a crushing burden on the Negro male. Basically saying that black men are being, you know, henpecked by um, women in strength. Likewise, this idea that African-American men are lazy or they are, you know, just doing their own thing. Uh, Black critics would respond, the reason why so many African-American households are led by women is because, like, men have been highly discriminated against and arrested and killed for the past, I don't know, 300 or something years. So that's why. It's, It's a functional thing. Uh, they argue that it is, you know, belittling to African-American women saying that, you know, y'all are taking over too much when it's a response to if, yeah, if black women didn't step up, uh, nobody would step up because black men have been so highly discriminated against. Also, they said it, retar- it, uh, it divided attention away from the good things going on in the African-American community. Uh, basically, the Moynihan Report really placed the emphasis upon, you know, oh, it's hopeless. You know, African-Americans are just, they need to pull themselves up out of bootstraps. And black critics are like, no, there are actually some good things going on. Uh, to ha- this is weird, though. What's, what's interesting is that, I- intrigued by some of this, actually, Nixon said, you know, maybe I'll help some poor families just for a, uh, you know, maybe I'll do something with a, with a, with a, food, with a, a family assistance plan, basically give food stamps to everybody. Uh, basically, you know, it's like sixteen, sorry, sixteen hundred dollars plus eight hundred dollars in food stamps was guaranteed uh, to be given to everybody across the board if the person had no wage earner. So basically, there was no other requirements for welfare, no welfare to work. This gets killed though. Uh, this gets killed by liberals and conservatives who feel that it is just basically it's just too too little, or the conservatives say that it's too much. Another major issue, probably the biggest fight that happens in the 1970s, is busing. Uh, basically, how do you desegregate schools that uh, are generally neighborhood schools, and generally most neighborhoods are either one race or another? Why by busing students from one place to another? Uh, you know, should we bus a student across district lines? That is a big issue. This has some of the biggest protests in the North, specifically Boston. Uh, specifically Boston. Uh, Boston, that's where you have the riot where somebody tries to stab a black protester with an American flag. Uh, there's a lot of protests against white people. You know, they're like, we moved out of these areas for a reason. We don't think that black students can be with our white students. It's a waste of resources. It's going to taint our good little white students, that sort of thing. Uh, much longer issue, issue that's theoretically still around. It is a very contentious issue. Uh, Vietnam, I'll be very quick about Vietnam with Nixon. Basically, Vietnam for Nixon is he wants to reduce the amount of American involvement, let the South Vietnamese fight for themselves. However, he starts bombing the crap out of Cambodia without telling the U.S. about it. Does it for about two years. Uh, drops more bombs on Cambodia in two years and does it in all of Asia for, like, the rest of the war. 
Uh, when Americans find out about this, there's a lot of different protests. For instance, at Kent State, uh, four students were shot by National Guard. Also, a couple days after that, is there, there's a riot, or there's a protest, I should say, at Jackson State, which is an HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi, and two students are killed. Uh, Nixon is killed by Watergate. He's not killed, but he, you know, he... That's why he resigns as president, basically, even though he campaigns on law and order and, you know, we're going to bring, like, you know, respectability back to America. He uses all sorts of dirty tricks and he ultimately uh, resigns rather than be impeached. A uh, quick thing I do want to talk about very quick because this is kind of long. I hope it wasn't going to be this long, but hey, it happens. Uh, a lot more African-Americans are getting elected into uh, elected office in this time period. Uh, mainly during the 60s and 70s, more African-Americans are getting involved in politics. They are, you know, being elected. Uh, likewise, um, you know, this, this trend keeps going up. However, the seventies end, uh, there's a lot of economic downturns. Uh, there's a lot of recession, a lot of economic uh, hardships, uh, poor black people are losing ground, but interestingly, the middle-class African-Americans grew. A lot of this has to do with government jobs, um, because of the, you know, the inability for the federal government to basically, there's no more discrimination in hiring for a federal job. A lot of African-Americans do get these middle-class jobs. Uh, think things like, you know, postman, postman or just working for a federal agency. Uh, working for the federal government, you're never going to get rich, but you'll always be very middle-class. Uh, 1976, you do have the Carver, Carter administration. Uh, Carter does get a lot of African-Americans to vote for him. He is a Democrat. He's a Southern Democrat, but he's a progressive Southern Democrat. About 90% of black voters do vote for Carter. He would have not have won without them, uh, running against Gerald Ford. Uh, also, you do have some more black uh, appointees that Carter does, so a lot of visible posts, people like Patricia Harris. Uh, she's the first uh, black woman to serve in the U.S. cabinet. Uh, she's the head of housing and urban development. Uh, likewise, the first black uh, ambassador to the U.N. is Andrew Young, who's a congressman from Georgia. And, you know, it's also getting pretty good for African-Americans. However, there is some domestic problems for Carter. Uh, not a great overall record. And then you have the Iran hostage crisis. By the time we get to 1980, Ronald Reagan is going to run for president. And we're going to talk about him more And honestly, our last lecture, because you can't talk about rap music without talking about Reagan. And that's where we're going to kind of end. A little bit earlier than normal. We're not going to get to Obama. I try to get to Obama in this class, but oh well. Uh, in conclusion... Civil rights victories, it does change life and culture, but it does get a lot more radical. Um, much, much, much more radical. You know, yes, you have black power, black arts, more black elected officials, more black studies in the academic field. However, there is definitely a backlash. Yes, Nixon, Johnson, and Carter try to alleviate hardships among the poor, but they all get a very much a backlash uh, by white people against pretty much all these things. things. Same thing with the civil rights movement. It becomes much more radical. Um, it becomes seen as, is it ends with a whimper, not a bang. It does get much more radical, but by the time we get to the seventies and eighties, because of the economic downturn and plus the changed rhetoric of the cold war, uh, the civil rights movement is not deemed as vital. Yes. African-Americans do have some progress. I mean, a growing black middle class is great. Same thing with more black elected officials, but there is also some, you know, steps back, uh, the white backlash, the various riots. So be thinking about that, be willing to talk about that, and I will see y'all in class.